This is how I asked you to pray for Ash and I when we were gone, that we'd had intimacy with God and each other, that rest and restoration physically, mentally, and spiritually would happen, that we would have fun and connect, that we would come back from sabbatical more in love with Christ, each other, and the church. And I, will, I can say that all of those things happen in a depth that we've never experienced before in our entire lives. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I've been asked today to do a little a teaching, a reflection on some of what God has taught me, some of what God has taught me uh, during my sabbatical. So if I remember how to do this right, turn to John 13. <laughs> John 13, verse 21. And I'm going to read John 13, verse 21, down through verse 29. And I'll pray. Verse 21. It says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Lord, I um, am filled with so much gratitude to stand here in front of this church and to begin to open the scriptures again with them. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us together, that we would be um, together submitted under the authority of the scriptures and the things that the Spirit would want to teach the church today. Um, I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, God. I need your spirit help, Lord, now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today, I want to talk about leaning back. I think the way I would summarize the last eight years of ministry here in San Francisco for me would be to say that I tried with everything that I had within me with all of my capacities to lean in. I leaned into teaching and I leaned into leadership. I leaned into the voice that I believed that God had given me for this season of my life and this season in San Francisco. I leaned into leading, I leaned into opportunities. I had said yes to so many opportunities over the last eight years, that all of them, that, almost all of them that were before me. I leaned into, into community and making a sustainable life here in the city. I leaned into a lot of things. And I think for, most, for the most part, the message that we get from our culture, especially in San Francisco in the Valley, is to lean in. To lean into your careers, to lean into networking, to lean into your 10-year plan, to get it planned and then start working and executing your plan, to lean into relationships and opportunities, to lean into ministry and personal growth and leadership, and then lean into maybe trying to start a family, and then leaning in while you're having a family as well. 
Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, has a wildly popular book on women in the workplace called Lean In. And the message is to lean into your career as women because, as she says, men lean into their careers and women shouldn't be afraid of being ambitious. And now all of us are now leaning in. We're all, all men, women, and there might be a good place for leaning in, in our careers, in our futures, um, in women's equality in the workplace for sure. However, with all of us leaning in, John gives us an enduring, vivid picture of what discipleship to Jesus looks like, and it's leaning back. In our text, it was the night of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus was enjoying the Last Supper meal with his disciples, giving them what would be uh, the first communion meal, what we celebrate and, and receive every Sunday morning. After dinner, Jesus removes his outer garment and he kneels down and he washes the disciples' feet in an act reserved for slaves. And after that, they're all lingering around the table. The table would have been um, about a a really low three-sided table, like in the shape of a capital U. They would have been reclining on cushions around the perimeter of the table. There were no chairs. They would have been leaning on their left arm or elbow since their right hand was used for eating and drinking. And as they sat there reclining, Jesus starts to explain how one of his closest 12 friends would betray him. Right in the middle of this whole beautiful supper scene, Jesus starts to say, someone in this room is going to deceptively betray me. And the room gets incredibly intense. And Judas is in the room. He's sitting there. Hatred in his heart. Tired of Jesus, tired of Jesus' teachings, tired of Jesus' promises, sick of Jesus and, the, and his way and his life, and resentment takes over. And finally, he agrees to help get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus, and here's the thing, Jesus knows it. One mystical writer says this about betrayal. He says, betrayal is more than separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confined to a friend, and to turn against that person. To use their confided thoughts or words in order to hurt and defile them, to destroy a reputation. Judas betrayed Jesus. He knew the secrets of Jesus how he thought, he knew that Jesus would go quietly, he knew he wouldn't put up a fight. And Jesus, during this meal, is no longer able to contain his emotion or his anguish. And he starts to say, someone is going to betray me in here. Look at verse 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit or in anguish. Some of your translations say he was in anguish. And he said, I'm, I'm telling you guys the truth. One of you is going to betray me. It's like Jesus isn't emotionally able to hold on to his inf- this information anymore. Have you ever been there? Where you can't emotionally hold on to like, what you know anymore and you have to say something? He, like, he can't emotionally hold on to it anymore and he has to say something. And his disciples are shattered at this statement. They're stunned. And maybe not so much by what Jesus said, but by the way Jesus would have said it. Probably trembling, his voice quivering, his words told through his tears. And finally, Judas leaves the room. And this is the strangest exchange 
They ask, who is it? And he's like, it's the, it's, it's the one who I'm going to give this piece of bread I just dipped. Here you go, Judas. <laughs> like, I think that's the strangest thing. I've, I've read that, I mean, so many times. I'm like, that's just got to be so weird. Judas is like, thank you? Like, like what is it? And, and no one gets it. Everybody's like, what's happened? What is he doing? And then Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. And then it says that he leaves the room. And when Judas finally leaves the room, John makes this comment. John says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Why did you say it was night? Because it was night. But, but also because John loves to play with this light and dark metaphor. He does this at the, from the very beginning of his book. This is how he starts his book. John 1, 4, it says, in him, speaking of Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John plays with these two things, light and dark, day and night. He loves playing with these polarities. And so here, when, Je when Jesus, who is the light of the world, is being betrayed, John comments, and it was night. Why? Because it was night and because Judas was turning away from the light of the world. And he was stepping into the deepest of darknesses. And he was stepping into the most cold place anyone has ever known. Judas was rejecting Jesus' love. And it started by losing trust in Jesus. Judas lost trust in him. And then it moved on and it progressed to opposing Jesus. We have several accounts of this in the Gospels where Judas opposes Jesus and what Jesus is doing or how Jesus is accepting love. And so it moved from losing trust in him, I don't know if I trust him, to opposing him. And then it culminated to outright rejection of his love. And from that point, no light could come in anymore. Judas was in darkness. And you know when you're in darkness because your life feels incredibly cold. But during this dark scene, we are given another polarity. During this just grossly dark scene, it was night. John's like, this is so dark what's happening. Judas's heart is so dark and so cold. But in the midst of that, we're given another like contrast, another polarity. And it's, hard, it's sometimes hard to see it, but it's right there. Another contrast to the darkness that Judah is, Judas is in, and it's this, in this unnamed disciple. We, we don't know who he is. We are only told that it's the disciple who, whom Jesus loved. That's all we're told about him. We're not given a name. As Judas is plotting betrayal, there's a disciple who's literally leaning back on Jesus' chest who is close to Christ in warm fellowship and intimacy, who is there in trust and comfort. The text almost makes it look as if the disciple gets closer to Jesus after he makes the confession of his agony. He's like next to him, close to him. And then when Jesus says, I'm in agony, someone's going to betray me. It says, then it says the disciple leans back against Jesus. It's almost as if he's so close to Jesus that he feels Jesus' heartbreak. And he leans back on him in loving intimacy. He knows where Jesus is at. He, he can feel his anxiety. He's that close to him. And so he like leans back in comfort. 
Like I said, we're not told who this disciple was who's next to Jesus. The person's not named. It just says the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I really love because it's like it could be any of us. It can be all of us. So the polarity is drawn out. Judas rejects Jesus' love, and the beloved disciple absorbs his love. He wants to be close to his love. Now, what I want to do is I want to meditate on this. I want to meditate on the second disciple, the, the light in this story. Let's meditate on the image of this beloved disciple that's leaning back on Jesus. As they were reclining around this table, remember there are no chairs, just cushions. Disciples are all, all of them are leaning. But this one disciple in particular is leaning on Jesus. It says that he's leaning on his chest. Some translations, maybe your translation says bosom. We don't really use that word anymore. But he's leaning on his chest. And when you put your head upon someone else's chest, your ear is just above that person's heart so that you're able to hear their heartbeat. Think about that. The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning back on Jesus, his head on his chest, his ear just above where Christ's heart is, able to hear it beat. And with that, we get a picture of John's ultimate image for discipleship. This is John's ultimate image for what a disciple is. For John, a disciple is someone who is leaning back against Jesus hearing his heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. The world, I mean, it doesn't get darker than this. Our Lord is about to be betrayed and put on trial and crucified. There is not a more dark day of of human history than this moment. And, And this disciple, he's gaining his whole perspective of the world from leaning back on Jesus, and we're told this is how we gain perspective. We can only get a true perspective of our chaotic world from a place of leaning back on Jesus. We see our chaotic world from the place and from the perspective of leaning back, being attuned to Christ's heartbeat. And I would even say being attuned to his blood pressure. I I mean, I need this. I needed this. There are so many times I see our world and things that go on in our world. And to be honest, the way that people respond to the things that go on in our world. And it makes my blood pressure rise. It makes my heart palpitate. I literally went to the doctor for this at the beginning of my sabbatical. I was like, doctor, I think my heart like, is doing something weird. It's like skipping, it's like doing weird things. And he's like, hooks me up on machines or whatever. And he's like, you're, you're fine. You're gonna be okay. You need to calm down and manage your stress. I'm like, is there a pill for that sort of thing? <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to give you a pill for that. That's not, you need to call. There's no pill for that, but there is a posture for that. There's a posture, it's leaning back. A disciple is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. That's, that's, what, that's what John's like drawing out here. Like we, 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 we see our world through the sound of like, oh, Jesus' heart is right there. This is how his heart is beating for the world. This is what God is doing right now. This is what God has ultimately taught me this summer. I learned that I have to see the world like this disciple did. From a place where I'm close enough to Jesus to hear his heart. I must confess that I don't think, that I think somewhere in the midst of pastoring this church the last eight years, I lost sight of that. 
I had my eyes and ears pressed up against you and your needs and the city and its crazy complexity and what I thought it needed and what I thought everyone needed in light of what the city needed, so on and so forth. Being close to Jesus this summer, I've come to realize that you need a pastor who is at least close enough to Jesus to hear his heart so that I could lead you there if you are not already there yourself. Like it's, it's, it's right here. Come over here. Lean back. This is, this is where you will gain true perspective on life. This is where there is true comfort and peace and love. See, the disciple's location is probably intended to tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus' chest. Now, this is such a big deal. This is where knowing Greek is really fun. I don't know Greek, but I read people who do know Greek. <laughs> and this is where it's really fun. Because where the disciple was in relation to Jesus is exactly where Jesus was in relation to his father. This is what John's prologue says. John 1, 8, 18, sorry, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, this actually doesn't translate that well in, in the NIV. If you have the old King James Version, anyone still rocking that bad boy? That is awesome. If you, you are, boom, like one, nice. Okay, if you have old King James, okay, if you're old school like that, this, this, this comes out incredibly well. Look what it says. It's on the screen. This is what it says in the old King James, um, uh, John 1.18. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, hath he hath declared him. And this is what it says in John 13.23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Same exact word. It's a relationship word. It means inside the heart of Inside the chest of, that's what the word means. That you're in such intimate fellowship, it's like you're inside their chest. Jesus comes to us from inside the Father's chest. And this disciple is literally leaning inside Jesus' chest. He's like in there. The same word, meaning the disciple is as intimate with Jesus as Jesus was with the Father. Or if that's maybe too strong for you. John is at least saying that this disciple relates to Jesus as Jesus relates to the Father which is to say, in true intimacy. This disciple gets it. This is the key of following Jesus. It's intimacy with Jesus. It's being next to him. And the implications for me as a pastor and for you as followers of Jesus called to make known Jesus is this. Jesus is being, being that close to the Father is able to reveal God. That's what John's saying here. He's saying, no one has seen God, but the one and only son who's in this bosom, he's able to, make, able to reveal him because he's that close to him. And the implications are the same for this disciple. He's so close to Jesus, he's able to reveal Jesus. He's able to make him known. That's kind of, some scholars think that it's literally John, the, the author of this, this book that's leaning against Jesus. And he's saying, I'm able to tell you about Jesus really because I was that close to him. Actually in 1 John, that's exactly what he says. I'm that close to Jesus, I'm able to make him known. And I know that a lot of us um, walk around with a lot of guilt, like, am I making Jesus known? Okay, I have to do more like, how do I do like personal evangelism? How do I even make Jesus known in the city? How, the, the only way we can make Jesus known is being so close to him that we're able to reveal his secrets. We're able to reveal his heart. We're able to know his heart. We're able to respond the way that he 
would respond, how he would want us to respond. For the beloved disciple, it means that he's so close, he's able to make him known. See, intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance. Intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance, meaning you're able to actually reveal the love of Christ. What our, our city and our world really, really, really needs is the love of Christ. We all know that. How do we do that? Intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance. Your intimacy with God will cause you to live in a different pace of life and a different response time with life. Meaning we can make Christ known as we know Christ. Now, let me get real practical for a second. Um, this sermon's not going to be super long, so you're welcome. Um, <laughs> but let me get real practical as I slowly wind down. Um, what does leaning back require? What do we do with it? I mean, yeah, I, I, I think maybe all of us would agree, like, yes, I... That, that, that posture of like leaning, like my whole life from a place of like leaning back against, on Christ. Yeah, I want that. How, to, how? What does it require? Three things. You have to show up. You have to show up. Ronald Rollheiser has this really great little book on prayer. Rollheiser is becoming my favorite writer. And he says this in his little book on prayer. He says, there is no bad way to pray and there is no one starting point for prayer. All the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer and you have to show up regularly. Rollheiser is saying, there is no bad way to pray. You can pray sitting down, standing up, on your knees, out loud or in your head with worship music playing or in silence, on a walk or in your bed. There is only one non-negotiable. You have to show up and you have to show up regularly. Guys, I have, I have clinically off the charts ADD. Like, I'm distracted. And that, that's not, like, for real, okay? Like, it's kind of funny, but it's not that funny if you're my wife. Like, <laughs> I'm distracted by so many things. I'm distracted by the thought of being distracted and what I would do if I was distracted at that moment. <laughs> like, I'm that, I'm that distracted. And it's, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And during my time away, I journaled that my single biggest weakness in prayer is regularity. Like, I have passion when I pray. I love intimacy with Jesus. I, like, I, I have so many things to pray for. Like, if, if I forget about what to pray for, I open a psalm and start praying. A psalm. I mean, it's like, I, I, that's not the, it's the regularity part. It's doing it over and over and over. And so when I say this, it comes harder to me than most of you or as hard to me than most of you. You're like, oh, no, you, you don't know how bad it is. No, I do know how bad it is. I'm that bad at it. But you have to show up to Jesus and, and place your, your head on his chest regularly, daily at least. You might need like a, a boot camp to help you kickstart this. I know I did. What I mean by that is like some silent retreat or someone where you detox from distraction. Because it's just so hard. Like I'll start tomorrow and then you get like, you might just need this like really intense boot camp where you're like, okay, I'm going to do a whole two days without any distraction at all and be completely silent. And that like, like whatever you need, do it. Which brings me to my second practical point. You have to show up and you must put away distraction. You must put away distraction. 
Imagine this disciple leaning back on Jesus and then his phone starts going off. Like, imagine that. I think it's a, it's a really funny thought. Like, in his cloak. Like, he's wearing, not wearing normal clothes. I mean, he's wearing his cloak. And he's leaning, and there's bzz, bzz, notifications, like, bo, 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 bo. And he's like, and Jesus looks down and is like, are you going to get that? Because now I'm distracted. Now, I, I was in a moment, and we were having a moment, and now I'm distracted. One of my favorite sayings while on sabbatical was, um, let's just not know. Let's just not know. Like, I got, I got a new phone number when I was gone. And I deleted all my social media and my email from my phone, disabled Safari. So my phone was like a phone. And, um, and you know how when you're in a good conversation with someone and then some, and then some random need needs to be fact-checked? Something random needs to be fact-checked. And then someone grabs their phone and then everyone's distracted for like eight minutes. You know how that works? And so I would say, and Ash got so sick of it. I'm like, let's just not know. Like, well, what about that? I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's just not know. <laughs> but, but this is not, and, and it was so fun. Like, like it, we would, um, one of the biggest ones was like how, why we've never seen a baby pigeon. <laughs> and we would sit there, we're in Rome, and like, I've never seen a baby. Ash is like, oh, my, I'm like, ah, and I, it was scary. It was like really scary. And so everyone I was with the summer on sabbatical, I'm like, have you seen a baby pigeon? They're like, no, no. Oh my gosh, like freaking out. And then everyone would grab their phone. And I'm like, no, no, let's just not know. Do not, if you're looking up right now, I'm so mad. Like, do not. And unless you know because you're like some bird person, I don't want to know. Because now I respect pigeons all the more now. Like pigeons know how to keep secrets, right? Like we don't know. This was, this for me, I, like gave me so much life. Like I, I want to be here. I don't want to be distracted. I, we live in, our culture is a, like this really powerful narcotic. And for good and for bad. I mean, our, the good is that a narcotic soothes and protects us against raw pain. And our, our culture has within it every kind of, of thing from medicine to entertainment to shield us from suffering. And that can sometimes be good. But a narcotic can also be bad, especially when it becomes a way of escaping reality. Our cultural narcotics shield us from having to face deeper issues of life, like faith and forgiveness and morality and even mortality. Things like our phones and entertainment can be set against the interior life by keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted, distracted that we lose focus on the deeper things. Like we never scratch the surface of deeper things. And what many of you have created in the valley has made our lives wonderfully efficient. And it has also conspired against depth in our souls. What you have created and the things you are creating help us and they have conspired against depth in our souls. I think those of you that are the closest to creating this stuff know it first. You know it already. You know what it's doing. And it's ruining the depth of our souls. And we have become so attentive to so many things that we're not attentive to anything, particularly what's deepest inside of us, particularly like our life with God. So you need to show up to God and show up regularly. And you need to put away distraction. Lastly, and this might be a little esoteric, so if you get it, you get it. If you don't, okay. We need to let go. And what I mean by that is this. And when I say you, by the way, I'm saying you need, you, I, 
I'm, I'm in. It's a collective you, right? I'm in. Okay. So just so you know that. Like, don't be telling me. I, I'm in too. I'm, I'm receiving this. You need to let go. There are a lot of visionary leaders in here. Many of you can see the future, like a future life, a future world, and then order your world to make that world happen. There are many in here who know how to take objects and numbers, code, materials, relationships, opportunities, or even whole companies and bring them under the agenda you have for shaping the world according to your own desires and purposes. Some of those purposes and desires might be good, right, and godly. And when you go to God, many of you, in the same way, you attempt to order your world. You attempt to use God to produce your own transformation and try to manipulate God to bring about the changes you have decided you needed. You go to God and go, this is what I need, God, and this is my growth path. This is what like, people say I need. This is the way I'm, this is where I'm going, and this, I'm going to you for this. And what you really need to do is you need to release control of your relationship with God to God. You need to release your relationship with God to God. Meaning when you go to God, you go, as the psalmist says, as a weaned child. I never really understood this. The psalmist says, I'm at peace. I'm like a weaned child. I, I think I just never really knew what weaned or unweaned meant. So I just like, cool. But a, 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 a weaned child, and this is kind of like what, exactly what this beloved disciple is doing against Jesus' chest, right? He's like a weaned child, meaning when an unweaned child would go to um, uh, their mother for milk. I'm here because I have a need. It's milk. An unweaned child is there not for milk, but to receive whatever the mom wants to give. Like, what do you want to give right now, mom? It's just there. Unweaned. Like, I, I don't need, I don't need milk. I don't, I don't, I'm not here with my own agenda. I'm here to receive whatever it is that you have to give me, mom. And so the psalmist says, like an unweaned child, I'm at peace. This is what this means. When we go to God, we're at such peace like, God, there are many needs that I have, but you, I'm, I'm just here for you. Whatever it is that you want to give me, whatever it is that you want to say to me, I'm not in control of my, even my life with you. You're in control. You're in control of where I'm at and where I'm going. And this honestly takes being alone. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not an introvert. So when I hear introverts talking about solitude and silence, I think you just like being alone. That's what I think, right? Like, oh, you need solitude and silence. I'm like, let's be honest. You just like being alone. You're an introvert. I get it. But I'm an extrovert. I love being around people. I love being around people so much that my favorite thing to do is to be alone together with a bunch of strangers in a coffee shop. Like, I'm alone, but I'm with people. I, when, and when I'm really, really alone, I love listening to people through music or podcasts or pictures or something to remind me that life is out there. <laughs> but I really learned in a profound way through silence and being alone that I must stop trying to control my life with God. I must let that go. One of the books that I read was called Invitation to a Journey, and the writer says, the practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. 
Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. Silence is the reversal of the whole possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. I read that, and at the same time I was reading this book on leadership that Ruthie Kim actually gave me like years ago. And I, and I, and I, and I, I read it's called Strength in the Soul of Your Leadership. She's recommended it probably to several of you, if you, and this book is so good. And then she said this thing that was like, I almost couldn't recover from this quote. It was so timely. It said, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we are vulnerable to a kind of leadership that is driven by profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. There is something about this regular, distraction-free time with God that you cannot, through the centuries, no one has figured out a hack around it. There is no hack for this. You can't go, well, I, I could get plugged right into God through this thing I do. And it just takes 60 seconds a day, and I could do it anywhere, anytime, any place. And it's this app I have, and then I put it in my ear, and then boom, I'm in the presence of God, and then boom, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go, I'm jacked. I'm there. There is no hack for it. You will not create one. It takes time with God, regular time with God, and time with God to where you are, without distraction, letting go. Maybe Judas was following Jesus to try and control Jesus. Maybe Judas was driven by such profound emptiness that when he started to realize Jesus wouldn't bend to his will, he decided to get rid of him. But the enduring picture of discipleship is leaning back on Jesus, showing up without distraction, letting go of control of whatever happens to Jesus. And I know, I know our world has been insane, especially the last couple of years. But I'll tell you, the only way to get true perspective of what's going on and have the real capacity to do something about it is from a place of leaning back on Christ. Let's pray. God, I um, pray that this would be a way that maybe we are as a church beginning to be postured in this, in this, in this town. I want to confess to you in front of my brothers and sisters that um, there were many times in and out over the last several years that I bought into the pace of this city, that I bought into um, what this city was selling and giving. And God, um, I know for some of us, um, we're there. We're just there 100%. We're so distracted. We're so everywhere all the time. And I pray that your voice is um, still able to break through, even if their heart has gone cold, even if resentment has set in against you, even if they're tempted like Judas to betray you. 
I pray that the warmth of your invitation would be come and lean back against me. Come and kneel or sit or stand or lay or whatever it takes without an agenda, just come and be there. I pray that we'd all hear that, Lord. We'd hear that together as a community. I pray that from this place we can get done way more in the power of the Spirit than we're ever able to do in the flesh. I pray that we would trust you for things that are seemingly impossible otherwise, God. Things in our, in our marriage, in our careers, in our families, in our relationships, in our single life and dating life. Things that we think this is impossible. I pray that you're able to accomplish more by us leaning back on you. And you're able to accomplish more through us. Reveal your love to San Francisco and the world through us as we take a posture of being with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.